Why are self-proclaimed socialists suddenly prominent in American national politics? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, four years ago, was elected to the House of Representatives. Senator Bernie Sanders, senator from Vermont, recently almost was nominated to be the Democrats' nominee for the United States presidency. This comes as a large number of young people are polled as claiming a kind of favorable attitude towards socialism. And even during last night's presidential debate, we saw an exchange uh, or accusations from the president that Joe Biden uh, was some kind of socialist. Welcome to New Ideal Live. New Ideal Live is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're here to discuss the topic, how to oppose the push for socialism. My name is Ben Baer. Shortly, I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Ilan Giorno. So, uh, Ilan, this is, a, this is a topic I think that you and I have both spent some time thinking about, writing about recently. Um, uh, do you want to do you want yeah, to I was off interested in the way you so you came up with the title for this discussion and I thought it was interesting because it assumes a number of things it assumes one that we know what socialism is and a lot of people dispute what socialism is and what it isn't and two that we should oppose it now I think we should and I think you think we should but why and so maybe we can start with um, and I think we should talk about some of the, so there might be people watching who think, no, we shouldn't oppose it. We should support socialism. So let's talk a little bit about just to kind of get the context. What are we talking about when we use that term? What is socialism? And then let's talk about why you think it should be opposed and what does that look like? And, and, and let's start with that. Yeah. And I should mention that anybody who's watching who doesn't agree that socialism should be opposed, I think we have things to say to you today too, because we're going to talk about some common arguments for socialism and you maybe an argument you've heard or made, and you might want to hear the way that we address them. But yeah, socialism is, I, I would say uh, it's the name of an ideology uh, and an ideology that calls for the establishment of a certain kind of social system. It's a social system that's usually distinguished from uh, capitalism, though its advocates would also further distinguish it from the mixed economy, from the welfare state, uh, which is something like what we have today, a mixture between capitalist and socialist elements. So what are those socialist elements? What do they consist in? And it's easy, I think, to figure that out by looking at prominent examples of socialist inspired systems that have already been established in history. I mean, the most obvious examples to start with uh, are Soviet Union, the USSR, communist China, North Korea, communist Cuba, and contemporary Venezuela. These are all systems that were uh, founded by socialist ideologues, influenced for the most part by uh, Marxist-Leninist ideology, in some case Maoism, which is an offshoot of that school. So they were founded by people who advocated this ideology. And if you look at what these different systems have in common, which is consistent with the ideology that uh, they were motivated by, it was the idea that there should be no private property rights. Private property needs to be taken from the capitalist and invested in the public. And the way this was implemented was through state ownership. Uh, and that's, as far as I know, the only way to do it. That's something we'll talk a little bit more about later. But uh, obviously, when you look at the record of these regimes, especially over the course of the 20th century, but 
including up until very recently in Venezuela, they're characterized by, in the end, extreme poverty, even starvation, brutal oppression of dissent, and on a geopolitical scene, aggressive uh, warmongering foreign policy. So I think those are the major examples to look at when trying to understand, first of all, what socialism is. If you look at all of them, you can, you can see that is the common denominator. I mean, I think it's useful. You, you mentioned oppression and sort of silencing dissent and brutality. I think it's, so the way I think of it, one common denominator among these different uh, uh, countries that tried socialism, you mentioned USSR, China, North Korea, and, and others, a common denominator is that there is no freedom. The, 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 it's the absence of freedom on, on whatever axis you look at. And freedom of speech is the one you mentioned. Uh, but the, the fact that you don't have private property, that is a, a fundamental violation of freedom. Like you don't have the ability to keep what you earn and, and create. Um, so Ben, I, I, I'm sympathetic with your view. I think that that's not going to be a surprise to people, but let me push a little in the direction that I think some people will be thinking, and this is something that I've heard, and I've talked to people who have this view. It's like nobody is calling for us to get into a Soviet-style system. Nobody wants what Mao created in China. Nobody wants to go to, you know, the kind of Cuban model, or let alone North Korea. So yeah, of course, yeah, we can we can say those are all they all went wrong. But what we actually want is a is what true socialism is, like, the, a, a, you know, divorce from all those things that we don't like. So you know, if we think about that isn't the sort of what you're saying, isn't that unfair to the advocates of socialism? Like they take, you know, Bernie Sanders or AOC and some of the intellectuals behind them who are saying what we're really talking about is a society that is, you know, it's about the community and it's not about brutality. We don't want a secret police. We don't want any of that. What we want is for it to come democratically. People choose it, or maybe the workers do it, something like that. So what do you say to that objection? I mean, I think that the idea of democratic socialism is a kind of euphemism that's used to describe what socialism really is. Uh, though it's a euphemism that trades on a certain kind of confusion that people have about what democracy is. And I'll say a couple of words about that. I mean, one thing to get clear on is that, first of all, whether a certain social system is established by a violent revolution or by vote, whatever the means of establishing it are, if what you're establishing ends up being oppressive, it sort of doesn't matter how you got there. And so the point that you just made a moment ago, Elon, is very important because you said common to all of these systems is a negation of freedom. And the negation of property rights is one important example of that. So uh, Ayn Rand, the, the, whose philosophy we are commenting from the perspective of, thought there's no separation between what you might call economic rights and what you might call human rights. She, she thought that freedom was uh, an integrated whole, that just as you need your mind and the products of your mind to be free and you need free speech, so you need to be able to dispose of the fruits of your labor to be a free person. And socialism, even if it's implemented through elections, still has that effect. It still has the effect of 
violating the individual freedom of, let's say, the, the capitalists whose private property is going to be expropriated from them. And so even if it's done through an election, the result there is the same. Uh, and the reason for that is because voting is not something that magically eliminates oppression. There's such a thing as the tyranny of the majority. The majority of people can vote to oppress the minority of people, whether it's a racial minority, whether it's a, a bunch of political dissidents, uh, or whether it's a uh, whether it's the capitalist class, as they call them, whether it's the property holders. And of course, part of the reason why uh, the, the socialist systems of the 20th century end up having to suppress dissent, not just by the capitalists, but by uh, a number of other people, uh, is because the economic consequences of the system uh, cause lots of people to suffer. People realize that something about the system isn't working. They speak up, but the system doesn't want them to speak up, so it silences them. Silences them. Um, the last point I'll make is with reference to what I mentioned was the common confusion about democracy. Uh, people have a favorable view of democracy because they think that it means something like the system that we currently have. They think it means Elections, yes, but elections that also work within the framework of a system that respects and protects individual rights. Uh, that's not the original meaning of the term democracy. Democracy did not originally mean simply voting. What it meant was majority rule, like the kind you had in ancient Athens, the kind that ended up executing Socrates. And so people who call for democratic socialism are trading on this ambiguity. They're trading on the fact that uh, they, you, democracy in the sense of a system protecting individual rights has a favorable connotation to it. But actually what the socialists really want is something a lot more like democracy in the original sense, in the sense of majority rule, whether it's a majority of the workers voting to oppress the minority of the capitalists or whatever other dissidents there are. So that, that's why I think this is a, is a, is a bad euphemism. Uh, sometimes socialists will say socialism just means extension from democracy, the extension of the idea of democracy from the political to the economic realm. I think that if you go by the original sense of democracy, that's actually accurate but that's also why it's a really bad thing. So Ben, you've written about the following kind of issue. The people now advocating for a socialism, at least in the United States, have a way of presenting themselves that, that I think is sanitized. It's, it, it, they, sort of, they try to distance themselves from the bad legacy of socialism and all the, the, the bloodshed that went with it. And one of the things they've said, and, and you've written about this and I'm just thinking about your article now that look, we're, we're not about the model of socialism where the state runs everything. And that's where, you know, that's a problem. We don't think that's what we want. Um, we want something where, you know, the ordinary workers do it themselves. Like the, so this is, and, and in some ways, you know, I, I, I remember a little from my from reading Marx years ago, there was this idea, it's not an original idea, but it's, it's the idea that the workers will control everything. So the, the state, you know, it, this is not, this is one of the traditional views in the socialist view 
that the state will go away, will just won't be necessary because the purpose of a state really is to control people and enforce certain kinds of economic relations. But when those go away, when we have a socialist economy, no need for a state, everything's hunky-dory. So what do you say to that line of thinking? Uh, do, I mean, do you find it, I mean, what do you think is, is going on there? It's completely fantastical. <laughs> So it, one thing to say is that it's obviously not the kind of socialism that the prominent socialist politicians like Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez are talking about because they're politicians who are actually proposing government policies that are going to actually uh, take control over industries. We're they want to take control of the healthcare industry. They want to take control of the education industry and probably a few others. So first of all, it's detached from the actual political reality. It's something you'll find mostly among kind of the nouveau socialist intellectuals, people like Bhaskar Sankara, Nathan Robinson, Richard Wolff. They do all make this argument. It's, it's an argument they make to go further along the lines of saying that what they advocate is different from what happened in the 20th century. What they advocate isn't the same thing as the Soviet Union. They claim, they all claim that the Soviet Union actually wasn't real socialism because they called it state capitalism. The state was the one who was acting as a capitalist by running the industries. And they think that only when the state is eliminated and the workers are the ones who are actually in charge, when the people are the ones who are actually in charge, do you have real socialism? Um, so you know, one point is that this isn't actually what today's socialist politicians are advocating. Another is, how are you going to get to that point? Uh, are, the, are the capitalists just going to voluntarily give up their property? If not, it needs to be taken from them. And if so, that still involves brutal oppression, if only in the transition period. But of course, it wouldn't be only for the transition period because there would still be consequences to that decision. And there would be, uh, there would be economic consequences that people would object to. And there would, again, that's the issue of dissent. In fact, there are there are no historical examples of social systems that have been set up in the way that today's uh, contemporary socialist intellectuals think they should be set up uh, with the possible exception of small utopian communities that didn't actually last very long. So there's no explanation for how uh, you could create a, glo a, a national scale socialist system of the kind that they want without the coordinated efforts of a state. And that's of course exactly where the potential for oppression and aggression actually comes from. And one thing and you mentioned, Elon, that you remember from, you know, in school reading Marx, uh, that this idea that the state would wither away, well, that's in Marx. It's in, it was in Lenin. Socialists have been saying the same thing for over a hundred years and yet whenever they actually tried to implement their ideas, what we actually got was a state. How else would you implement these ideas? Uh, it was, if you look at the way it's Stalin's record in the Soviet Union, for instance, uh, for, for several decades, well, for several durations of different five-year plans, he would be saying, no, we haven't achieved real socialism yet. This is all necessary transition to the achievement of socialism. And at a certain point when it became absurd, he just declared, no, we've, I can't remember which year in the 30s it was, but he just declares, oh, now we've achieved socialism, even though he's still in charge. So the point is, how can you, how can you take them seriously? How can you believe that what they want to do is not to create a state 
when this same line is what every other socialist revolutionary has used, and it's always been accompanied by brutal state oppression. And it's always led then to starvation and death. I just want to underline that because it, to me, it's, there's a, it's disreputable to talk about socialism without taking seriously the actual record of socialist regimes. And you mentioned Stalin, the USSR, I mean, they, they, there was a man-made famine to get rid of a whole uh, sort of class of, of people who refused to give up their property or kind of opposed the regime. Millions of people were, were starved to death so that socialism could triumph in that country. We'll take a smaller example, uh, the East Germany, which came about after World War II, I'm really fascinated by this country. And one of the things I, I, I learned about it in reading on East Germany is two, I mean, two things are really fascinating. One, the extent of state control over people. They had a massive spy network, which was informal in the sense that husbands would spy on wives, children would spy on parents, uncles would, would spy on, on, on uh, so distant, and nobody quite knew who was a spy. And so imagine the atmosphere of everyone is a potential informant on you. And just think about the way that sort of enforces thought control and, and sort of limits what you can do. And the second one, which is maybe more famous, uh, is the fact that East Germany um, ended up having to put up a wall along the border with West Germany in, in, in the city of Berlin to prevent people from leaving because they did not want to live under a socialist regime. They literally were leaving by the thousands for many, many years. And the Soviet uh, rulers there said, well, you know, if, if people leave, how are we going to how are we going to keep this country going? We need them to work. We need them to run the hospitals. We need them to run the factories. And so they put up a wall and they shot people who tried to leave. So this is what socialism really looks like. It has a bloody record. And when people are, and part of what makes me angry, and I think there's real dishonesty among some of the contemporary advocates of this view, is that they brush that aside. So, yeah, of course that's wrong. That's not what we're about. But the logic of their view necessitates outcomes that destroy human lives and and on various scales both in the millions with the soviet regime and in the hundreds and the hundreds of thousands on on in other countries and it's this is a it's a moral crime to be an advocate for something and ignore or evade purposely disregard and and try to whitewash this um yeah i'd say a few things about that uh if what you advocate is what they call democracy, which means majority rule, which means that people should be sacrificed, that individuals should be sacrificed for the alleged greater good. Well, then yes, that is exactly the thing that they end up doing. As you suggested, the logic of their ideas leads to these results. And then just to illustrate that a little bit, uh, Elon, you mentioned both the manufactured famine in the Ukraine and East Berlin. Well, uh, if, if there are any viewers who haven't yet seen uh, either of these movies, I suggest taking a look on Ukraine, uh, the very recent Mr. Jones, which is a really eye-opening account of how that famine was manufactured and how it was uh, suppressed from the, uh, from the Western media by the Soviets and including their collaborators among Western journalists. Uh, one of the things that I argue in a recent article is that the way that the contemporary socialists argue 
to say, no, no, we're not talking about that. It's, it's basically the same trick, uh, though it works through conceptual means rather than just blocking the actual journalistic fact and saying, don't, don't look at that because we're not really advocating that, even though what they, the ideas that they advocate really do lead to that. And then the second example, uh, second movie, The Lives of Others, which was a really uh, heart-wrenching account of what life under the East German regime, uh, under the surveillance of the Stasi was like. And yes, the reason why the Stasi was interfering in everyone's lives and monitoring them was because uh, they were trying to get to the West, because they were trying to get ideas from the West. And uh, when someone doesn't want to contribute to this collective effort, uh, they're not allowed to, to, to depart. They're not allowed to opt out because they're expected to sacrifice for the sake of the proletariat or whatever. And I want to I add one more point. So we, we've talked a bit about sort of these world historical um, bloodbaths that are the result of socialist uh, regimes. I want to give another kind of perspective on this for people to think on because I think it's it's often overlooked. Um, it's the kind of issue that you, socialism is bad at whatever degree you you implement it, whether it's fully as in the Soviet regime or, or on smaller scales and, and incompletely. And I think it's bad fundamentally because of its sort of inherent goals, which I think of as it's putting a group above the individual. And I, I I've I've actually lived in a in a for a while I lived in a uh, community in Israel called a kibbutz. There are many of these. These are agricultural workers' communities, and, and there's no private property in, in, in the one I, I was in. And everything is decided by committee. You are assigned a job by committee. You, you are assigned a house. And it, the, these kind of communities varied in how, you know, how stringent they were about implementing these. But um, my mother grew up in one which was very stringent, such that the children weren't even raised with their parents. They were raised in a children's house to make it completely equal uh, and to disconnect family relations because that was an unsocialist. But the reason I mentioned this is I, I got an insight in just talking to people. I spent a lot of summers with my grandparents at their uh, kibbutz. And I got a glimpse of what life was like there. Uh, and one of the things I would say that people overlook about socialist communities and, and regimes in general is that whatever happens economically, and there's all sorts of ways you can monkey it and kind of mask the, the actual nature of it. The reality is that it's dehumanizing to the individual. It's destructive to the individual's life. And I mean, one anecdote I would share is that I knew somebody who grew up in a kibbutz and the, basically the, the community decides everything for you. So um, in childhood, you know, you don't choose the presents you get, you're just assigned a present. You don't get to pick you know, what you do. And so this one person wanted to go to college and expand their, their knowledge and, and sort of set a path in life. And who gets to decide that? It wasn't the individual, it was the committee. And the committee decided, no, those other people are gonna go to college and you're not gonna go, so too bad for you, screw you. You're not gonna have this opportunity in life. And so the, obviously the person can leave and, and, and try to find a way to become educated, but it just, it, it puts an extra burden and the fundamental thing is that it's, it's putting control over your life in the hands of the, of the group. And that means you don't have control. It means you are robbed of this fundamental um, uh, sort of ownership over your own life. 
And this is what it does. And I think it's psychologically incredibly destructive because the, one of the important things in life is that you make decisions and what you make decisions and you, you view yourself as competent to make decisions and, and is able to do that. And what the sort of collectivism that's at the base of socialism tells you is that, no, the group knows these things. You do not. You're not competent. You can't make these decisions and it's not your life. It belongs to the group and we'll do with you whatever we want. And just think about what that does to an individual. So to me, uh, it, it's really dehumanizing just on that sort of one-to-one -one level uh, where you put your life in the hands of a group and the group does with you whatever it wants and it's not pretty. One of the things that I think is interesting about that kind of story, and I've heard other stories like that about kibbutzes, is that a kibbutz is a voluntary association, right? So it's not even the case that it's a state that's imposing, uh, you know, membership, and it's not the case that nobody's, uh, uh, you know, stopped. It's not the case that anybody um, is permitted from leaving, but uh, or stopped from leaving. Sorry. But it's still bad, even when it's voluntary. It's, which I think goes to the point that the destructive political systems that are oppressive are, are simply a consequence. They're consequence of these deeper kind of moral social ideas connected with the socialist ethic. That even when people who are living by them voluntarily try to live by them, it still has this very dehumanizing effect and, and for the reasons that I think you mentioned. So Ben, we've, we've talked from different angles about why we, we're opposed to socialism, why we think other people should be too. What then, let, let's talk a bit about what it looks like to oppose it. And cause there is, I agree with you, there is a kind of uh, rising appeal today, particularly among young people in the United States, there's political dimension to it. What does it look like to oppose it. And, 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 you know, when I grew up in the UK, the, the voice against socialism was the, the, the conservative party, the Tories. And in the United States, it's the sort of the conservative slash Republicans who are often positioning themselves along with many libertarians as sort of the opponents of socialism. So what do you, what do you take to be their arguments? What, what are some of the positions they take? Yeah. So unfortunately, even though socialism is a deadly and vicious evil that needs to be opposed, you don't find, I don't think, very effective opposition to it in this country, even among the people who think of themselves or claim to themselves the title of being opponents of it. So if you look, for example, at the example of President Trump, uh, he gave a speech at the UN where he railed against socialism. Uh, he also, the most recent State of the Union address, I think, reserved a chunk of it for saying the United States will never be a socialist country. But this is a president who then proceeds to authorize the spending of trillions of government dollars to bail out the economy, uh, which in many ways involves the Federal Reserve taking ownership over uh, chunks of uh, stock portfolios. Uh, he also tries to order around major American corporations, whether we're talking about Amazon or Facebook, uh, as though he were their CEO, as though uh, as the president of a nation, he had the power to tell them what to do. 
So maybe it's the case that President Trump doesn't want to have formal state ownership of these industries, but he still wants these companies to behave uh, as though they are state property. He's working from the same premise as the socialists do. He's working from the same kind of collectivist premise, the idea that the group is all. In his case, the group is the nation rather than the workers' collective, but it amounts to the same thing. So he's not a socialist. Maybe uh, he's a different kind of collectivist, but you can't effectively oppose one kind of collectivism with just another kind. Uh, and what's otherwise characteristic of President Trump is that there's just, there's no intellectual opposition to socialism. For, for him, and I think for many other conservatives, socialism is simply a pejorative term. It's a way of calling an, uh, someone a bad name. He's a socialist. And you see a lot of this. You see a lot of people just name calling socialists, name calling people on the left socialists, as though that's all you need to do. You call, you call them the name and, and that has the effect of identifying everything about them that needs to be identified. But it doesn't do anything to uproot the social, political, moral ideas that socialism is founded on, that, that motivates socialists. So for example, we talked about how the socialists draw on the idea of democracy. They say, what we want is real democracy, where the workers are the ones who are actually by majority vote running things. Well, you don't see conservatives or President Trump saying, no, the majority shouldn't be in charge. You don't see them saying what we need is to have protection of equal individual rights for all, such that no one is allowed to be sacrificed to anyone else. You don't see them doing that. And Can I, I just jump, jump in there, Ben, because one of the things that I find this really irritating because it's intellectually really problematic. Because if you think back, some people watching might remember when uh, President Barack Obama was in power. And one of the bigger, I mean, I was not a fan of Barack Obama at all. I, I certainly rejected his policies and I think there's a lot of problems with Obama. One of the, but what I want to pick out is that when he was in power, a lot of what he was doing, the, the response to it was another socialist, you know, another step towards socialism, another, you know, he's a socialist. This is bad. So in the, in the way that you're describing, so using socialism as, an, as just, that's all you need to say. Not everyone was doing this, but there were people who thought that's all you need to do. And what made this really, I think, problematic is there was no alternative positive that people were advocating for. And there was also, which was, so that's a problem, what, what, as opposed to what? At the same time, they supported the basic idea of what he was doing. Oh yeah, we, we need to take care. So one of the signature policies of Barack Obama was the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And many people who saw themselves as conservatives were opposed to the policy, but not to the goal. And so, yeah, we want to do it, but not this way, which means we want to have the nationals or the collective in charge of the healthcare system. We want to nationalize it in a, in a sense, but we don't want him to do it. We want our own scheme to do it. And you, so you can't, you can't, you can't throw around the word socialism in a, in a vacuous way, it doesn't, doesn't work in opposing it. And it certainly is counterproductive if what you're doing is endorsing its basic premise. And my view is that the, it, it's really dangerous to throw the term around if you don't know what it means, because it cheapens it. And that is, it's a crime. To, it, it's, 
it's a sacrilege because of all the people who died at the hands of socialism. You can't use it cheaply like this. It, and it, it, particularly if what you're doing is endorsing its basic premise. And I see that all the time. I think using it cheaply also has the effect of getting young people interested in it because they see their elders spouting off about what's wrong with so about how socialism is bad and without explaining it. And they then say, Oh, what is wrong with socialism? Let me look into this. And then they actually get into it. Uh, so it needs to be accompanied by intellectual arguments, yeah, and uh, not just name calling. Yeah. Just one clarification. I, I th actually think a lot of what the Obama administration did was socialistic. I mean, it was on the premise of moving us towards a yeah. more socialized economy. But some of the things he did were actually not socialist. They were fascist in the sense that they were leaving the superficial appearance of private property or free enterprise, but in effect regulating things to, the, to such a degree that there wasn't real freedom. Like you were, you were the owner or the operator of a business in name only. Um, and and that's, that's its own kind of evil. But it, when you call it socialism, you're not helping anyone get clarity on what's going on. Yeah. I also wanted to mention one other kind of uh, critic of, of socialism, which I think is at least a little bit more effective, but still I don't think effective enough. Uh, and that's the kind of uh, libertarian opposition to it that you often see. And here I have as a case in point, uh, Rand Paul, who has a recent book out called The Case Against Socialism. I haven't read the whole book, but I've read a chunk of it. And I, I have a much higher regard for Paul than I do for uh, President Trump. He actually brings an intellectual perspective to this issue. I don't agree with every aspect uh, of his position. Uh, and I, there's some real problems with it. But uh, in, so he's at least giving an intellectual argument. And in his book, he actually, I think, outlines a lot of important facts about the destructive political and economic consequences of socialism, including some really eye-opening facts about the history of socialism uh, in Venezuela. But then when it comes to explaining what's the problem with this system, he, what he focuses on is, well, the socialist leaders, they ingratiate themselves with money from the people. They, they're corrupt. Now, I think this is true and it's relevant, but is it the first thing to mention? Is it the fundamental problem? There's actually a chapter in his book called Why Capitalism is the More Moral System. The more moral system. So he doesn't actually explicitly say socialism is immoral, but capitalism is at least more moral. And even there, his main point is to say, well, capitalism involves a kind of inequality, but there's nothing wrong with inequality. And to your point earlier, Elon, about how there's, there's no attempt to uphold positive values as opposed to just knocking down uh, negatives. You see that here too. He doesn't say what positive moral value capitalism helps achieve or protect. He doesn't speak, at least at the beginning, in that chapter about the morality of capitalism. He doesn't say something like, well, capitalism protects the morality of individual freedom or the morality of the pursuit of happiness. And that's a major shortcoming, I think, in, in that kind of defense. And there's other critics out there some who give you know, devastating economic analyses of, uh, of socialist systems. Von Mises, who's an Austrian economist, had a fantastic book on the economics of socialism. Uh, and there are others who give heart-wrenching testimony about their life under socialism, which I think gives evidence of the kind of moral failure 
that we've been discussing, but few go so far as to challenge uh, the actual moral premises that motivate socialists to believe in socialism and to try to implement it. You know, I, I think you're, I, I want to press on that point because I think this is, this goes to the, the, the issue that we started with, how to oppose socialism. I remember um, when I was in my teens uh, in the United Kingdom, the, there was a socialist party, the Labour Party, and they made a big change in their platform to remove um, the, the provision of state ownership of this means of production. So in effect, they took a step back from full socialism. And one of their former leaders at the time went on TV and, and so he started arguing, yeah, we're not about, we're not all about sort of taking over society, but we're about ethical socialism. And I, at, my, at a young age, I sort of, that made me think because I think in the end, what really is going on here is that this is, like, this is a basic moral issues. Like, do you think, what, what do you think a moral society looks like? And if you can't answer that question, if you can't oppose the socialist view, you're in a pickle. You really have a challenge before you. So I want to just push on that point a little bit more, Ben. So what do you think is going on here with, what does it look, what do you, what would you advocate for in terms of opposing socialism? Because a lot of issues have come up that are, I think are either at the level of morality or just, just very adjacent to it. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's, it's good here to draw some lessons from some of the points we've discussed previously. I mean, I mentioned just recently, I said, <clears throat> the problem with the current critics, I think, is that they don't dig deep to the moral premises that motivate socialism. So what are those premises? Well, we talked about how socialism involves the negation of private property in favor of state ownership. Why would anybody think that that's the way a system should be run? Well, because they think private property owners are fundamentally selfish, uh, that the pursuit of self-interest is immoral or amoral at best, and that state ownership will, will serve to stop their immorality and then serve the poor and the downtrodden, uh, which is consistent with the idea that we should be our brother's keeper, which is a uh, common moral viewpoint. Why do socialists think that majority rule is superior to individual rights, including individual property rights? Well, it's the same basic reason. They think that uh, individuals uh, should not be able to pursue their own happiness unhindered by others, because again, there's no, they grant no moral sanction to that pursuit. What underlines this entire approach the moral principle at stake here for them is the idea your happiness doesn't matter. You should give up your time, your energy, your wealth, your resources for the sake of other people who need it more, who don't have what you have. This is what they call the morality of self-sacrifice. It's the morality of selflessness. It's the philosophy of altruism. That's the moral view that's at the base of collectivistic systems like socialism. It's also the moral view that's behind the tradition of Judeo-Christian religion. I think that's part of the reason why critics don't want to touch it. But if, if you truly reject what socialist systems are and what their consequences are, you have to 
look at the causes and the causes are these moral premises. And the only way to reject the effects is to reject the cause. Um, this is what Ayn Rand herself did. Uh, this is why she, she was not primarily a critic of collectivism, but of altruism and advocated instead for a morality of the pursuit of happiness, of rational self-interest. Um, I thought I would show, I would share with you a, a quotation of hers, with, which I think underscores a number of these points in her essay or her speech, Faith and Force Destroys the Modern World. She says, socialists had a certain kind of logic on their side. If the collective sacrifice of all to all is the moral ideal, which is what Judeo-Christian altruism says, then they wanted to establish this ideal in practice here and on this earth. The arguments that socialism would not and could not work did not stop them. Neither has altruism ever worked, but this has not caused men to stop and question it. The fallacies and contradictions in the economic theories of socialism were exposed and refuted time and again in the 19th century as well as today. This did not and does not stop anyone. It's not an issue of economics, but of morality. The intellectuals and the so-called idealists were determined to make socialism work. How? By that magic means of all irrationalists, somehow. That's in her essay, uh, Faith and Force, which has a lot of other good stuff in it. I do recommend it. Um, we should probably start to wrap up soon, Elon, but just before we do, I, I thought I would mention uh, to those who are watching, again, we'd, we'd like to take your questions. So uh, whether you ask the question in English or in Spanish, please plug it into the Zoom question box at the bottom of your screen. Uh, bottom of your screen. So Ben, I, I was just thinking about your observation here, sort of building on Ayn Rand's view that it's really about the morality and that you need, that's what you need to challenge if what you want to do is push back against socialism. What do you, do you think this is an accurate or at least, a, a, you know, in the right direction characterization of what socialism is as a, as a worldview, as a, as a sort of a intellectual endeavor? Um, it's a kind of secularized religion with the same mor morality in essence as traditional uh, Judeo-Christian religion. So the, sort of the morality is, is oriented toward other people with a focus on the group. That's sort of the, 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 the commonality, but then the rest of it is it's dressed up to seem secular. It's dressed up. I mean, it, it's, it's supposed to be, you know, Marx thought of himself as a scientific socialist, like he's on the cusp of progress. But I mean, do you, what, do you find that analogy accurate? Is it, do you find it has like, I mean, I know that just analogies do, but what do you think of that? Yeah, I do find it accurate for the reasons that you mentioned and for others as well. And one noteworthy reason in addition is the reliance on faith that, uh, well, we've tried this system many times before, it's never worked, but have faith this time it's gonna be, it's gonna work. This time it's going to be different. This time the state will wither away and there will be a utopia. Uh, I mean, it's not too different in principle from have faith, your suffering and sacrifice on earth will be rewarded by heaven in the afterlife. Uh, and in both cases, it never comes. Well, why don't we, we have a lot of questions and it's great. And we have questions from our viewers who are listening to the Spanish translation. We have our colleague who's translating the questions for us. So we, we'd love to take some of those as well. We are monitoring uh, both the Zoom questions for those of you 
on that live stream and, and also on YouTube if you want to add your question to the super chat feature. So where should we begin? I, I see a lot of interesting things here. Let me see. I think we could start with the first Spanish question. Okay. This touches on some of the things that we were just discussing. Okay. Um, and there's a few things I want to challenge about the question, but there's still a question here. Uh, the person writes, I saw a recent poll and it said that most Latinos intend to vote for Biden. Why do you think most Latinos in the US vote for the left, even though socialism is what they escaped and why they emigrated to the US? Shouldn't they vote Republican? Um, so there's a few things to unpack here. Uh, I haven't seen the poll in question. Um, I, I've seen different polls, not this one. I don't uh, doubt that this might be true. Uh, one thing here is, I think the question is equating Biden with socialism. And without commenting too much on Biden himself, I do want to say two things. One is, for some of the reasons that we've discussed already, especially on the matter of not cheapening the idea of socialism and the accusation of socialism. I think it's a mistake to equate everybody who's left of center with socialism per se. There are different uh, ideologies on the left that want to implement different kinds of policies. And there are, uh, however, and here's the second point, I do think it's right to argue, and, and this is something else that you said earlier, Elon, that there's such a thing as a socialistic outlook. There's socialistic policies. And so I don't think the Democrats generally are in favor of socialism per se, but they are operating from many of the same premises of about the importance of the collective versus the individual as, uh, as the socialists are. And the more they operate on those premises, the further and the closer they push us in the direction of socialism. So that is a fair point, I think, and it is important to, to bring out. Um, and we could have a separate conversation to what extent the Republicans are helping them to do that. And so, you know, the idea that the alternative is to vote for a Republican here is at least uh, a debatable one. But why even though Democrats, let's say, are pushing us towards socialism, do, let's say, Latinos who are refugees from socialism want to vote for them? Well, it's not just Latinos. I would say there's, there's plenty of, uh, people from Eastern Europe and Israel and uh, other places in the world who are refugees from socialism, but who do the same thing. Uh, and there's, I think, lots of reasons for it. But uh, one reason that I would highlight, I would suspect, uh, is something we've discussed just recently as well, which is that uh, lots of people from around the world who are refugees from socialism still share those same moral premises in common. I mean, especially if they're coming from somewhere like heavily religious Latin America, heavily Catholic Latin America, which uh, is fully on board with the idea of uh, the sacrifice of the individual to, uh, to the poor, to the collective. Well, these are the policies that the Democrats want to implement. Um, do you want to say any more about that, yeah, Elon? I just want to jump and add a couple of things. First, thanks. To, uh, we've just received a, a donation through the Super Chat. We really appreciate it. And glad you found the dialogue. Yes, thank you. Helpful. And um, if you guys want your question raised to the top of the queue, you can, you can add it to the Super Chat and put some money behind it. We'd uh, love your support. Um, on this question, 
I'm not sure, I think you can get different polls showing different things, but I actually have seen polls pointing in the opposite direction saying that there are certain segments of, if you think of it as a Latino community in the US voting for Trump. And it's, that's, that's puzzling for many other reasons. And people are trying to puzzle out what that means. And I, I, I think um, it's not a, you have to know what the poll is and how they asked it and what people they asked and, and sort of the, the way the questions are framed. Um, so the, the, the one thing I would raise here is that it takes work to think through who to vote for and what ideas you should support and not support. And I think the experience of living through some of the destructive consequences of socialism isn't in and of itself enough for people to, to understand what went wrong and to see, to recognize so the, the encroaching of those ideas in other places. So it takes work. It's not automatic that you grew up in a bad context, the, the socialist community even, and that you would go against it. I mean, I, I know people who, who grew up drinking socialism through their mother's milk and they still vote socialism and it's done really bad things to their lives. And they, it's not an automatic thing. It takes thought and choice to really gain that knowledge. Good. I have a question here in the, in, from the Zoom, which I was interested in raising too. So let me get it from sort of the audience perspective. So how do you respond to someone who says that countries like Sweden and Switzerland are socialist and that Venezuela is not? And we can expand this a bit more because there's definitely a lot of countries that people point to, particularly Sweden. And then, you know, we're trying to bracket Venezuela. That's a different case. So let's, let's explore that a bit. Well, let me first say something about the Venezuela is not, because uh, there I think uh, that's the easier point to, to answer. I think we've already said a fair amount about why uh, it's uh, not a valid thing to say. Uh, the fact that uh, Venezuela, that the Chavista regime began democratically, that doesn't qualify, that, that's uh, fully consistent with its being socialism socialist. Now, it doesn't have elections that are very fair or free anymore. It's quite brutal, quite authoritarian. But a point that I actually wanted to make earlier about the democracy issue is that socialist revolutions that begin democratically usually don't stay that way and for very good reasons. Uh, it's impractical uh, for a economy to be planned by majority rule on a regular basis. And so what usually happens is the majority decides that it's okay with control being centralized in a single authority figure. This is how it worked in the history of the Soviet Union as well. It started, it's called the Soviet Union because Soviets are worker councils, which were then unified under the authority of the Politburo and, uh, and Stalin. Uh, so they eventually dispensed with those worker councils and the authority became centralized. And I think that's of necessity. Um, the Chavista regime was inspired by all the same socialist ideology. It did in fact assume control over the major industries of, uh, of the country, most prominent of which was the energy industry. Uh, it didn't control every industry, uh, didn't, uh, but it did impose price controls, which had the effect of controlling a lot of industries uh, indirectly. So there's fascistic elements in the Venezuelan system as well. That didn't make it any better. Uh, but uh, at core, I think that there's every reason to think that it's socialist and it's arbitrary to dismiss it uh, otherwise. Now, as, as Sweden and Switzerland, I know more about Sweden, uh, are very different stories. And they're often cited 
by contemporary uh, socialist politicians like Bernie Sanders as the kinds of examples that we should live up to. They'll say, no, I don't want to be like Venezuela. I want to be like Sweden. Um, but what's interesting there is that if you go by the definition of socialism that I articulated earlier, Sweden is not really socialist. It's true that it is a heavily regulated welfare state where the, you know, there's a very high tax burden and that people have to pay in order to fund various social services. But fundamentally, the government of Sweden is not in control of uh, the industries. They're privately run industries. Some of them are very successful privately run industries. They have a hard time functioning under the heavy tax burden, uh, but the ownership is basically private. And one thing that's also true about Sweden is that while it's true, just like with the Democrats, um, left, left wing governments are pushing towards socialism. The governments of Sweden were pushing towards socialism all through the middle to the late 20th century. And it was getting very socialistic. But then in the early 90s, they realized that the socialist, the socialistic policies that they had adopted were in fact beginning to bankrupt the country. And so they started pulling back. And so in many ways, Sweden's economy has been pushed closer to capitalism in the last 20 years uh, than ours has. Uh, in certain ways, it's, it's, it's less regulated. If you just look at actual business regulations, they still have a very heavy tax burden. But Sweden has been doing well in large part, I think, because they've become less socialist. And that's true, I think, of a lot of the other uh, Scandinavian welfare states. Uh, I don't know Switzerland so well, but I, I suspect something similar is the case there. Know, did you want to add anything to that, Elon? Yeah, I think it, it's useful to think of these different countries as there. So socialism is a kind of social system, and it's going to manifest differently the extent to which certain uh, ideas are implemented. So if you look at uh, Sweden, I think in some ways, the United Kingdom between 1950s through the early 1980s was was really controlled, very socialized. A lot of industries were government run and government owned uh, and it showed and you could see it. And so it, but was it the same as the Soviet regime? It was, no, it was different, but did it have significant if not predominant elements of socialist policy? Yes, it did. So it's useful to see that for any of these concepts that we're trying to understand and apply there are going to be variations within it, but what's important is to understand what's the, the essence, what's the, the sort of distinguishing feature or features of it that mark it out and that, that are crucial, they're fundamental in terms of they're causally explanatory, right? They help us understand what's going on and what was in common between the United Kingdom when it was super, very socialistic was um, the individual didn't matter and society or the, sort of the, the, the government in, as the embodiment of society made all important decisions. It ran big segments of the economy and that was the way society was ordered. Um, so it's important to get sort of what are we trying to capture by socialism? It's, it, there's going to be variations in, in what is acceptable within those variations in terms of understanding it. So Ben, uh, we're kind of in an interesting situation. We've got a lot of interesting questions. And I, I think we should um, try to get through as many of them as we can. One thing we could do is have a follow-up, just Q&A on this topic if people are interested. But let's see if we can get a few more questions quickly. Sure. Um, one that I thought would be interesting 
uh, I'm trying to find it again in the queue, has to do with the appeal of socialism today in the United States among young people. Uh, and what do you, so the questioner is, is speculating or suggesting, it seems like this is relevant, you know, the, the education system is relevant to this. Do you, what thoughts do you have on that? Yeah, and they're also asking what they what could be done on a policy level to limit the spread of socialism. So I've I've looked at some of the the polling of young people about the appeal of socialism, and there are several interesting things about it. Um, I haven't looked at it in a while, so I don't remember all the details. But one interesting thing about it is that many of the polls where you get a surprisingly large percentage of people saying they have a favorable view towards socialism in the same exact polls, a very large percentage will also say they have a favorable view of capitalism where those two percentages are more than hundred percent, which suggests that some people have a favorable attitude toward both. So that right there is a red flag as it were, because it suggests they don't know what they're being asked. They don't know what socialism is when they're being asked if they approve of it. And another example of the same thing, in some of the other polls uh, where they're asked the same question about their attitude toward socialism, you also get that uh, they're also asked questions about con more concrete policies and practices. And so, for instance, they're asked, uh, do you have a favorable view of uh, tech entrepreneurs in the business world? And many of the same people who say that they have a favorable attitude towards socialism say they also like the tech entrepreneurs. And so again, if socialism means the ownership of the means of production, that's inconsistent with there being tech entrepreneurs of the kind that these people have this attitude toward. And in fact, also when you then ask them to define what socialism is, most of them are not able to give a definition. Most of them are not able to even pick uh, the ownership of the means of production definition from a list. So there is an educational issue here for sure. The people who approve of socialism, to put it lightly, don't know what the hell they're talking about. They don't know what socialism is. Uh, they don't know anything about the history of socialist systems. You know, maybe they've heard some arguments about how those old systems aren't really socialist. Uh, they don't know how all these arguments have been given many, many times before by the very people who created these old systems. So uh, there's clearly an educational problem here. I don't think the primary uh, solution is uh, to uh, spread pro-capitalist propaganda in the educational system. It's primarily just to get better history of actual socialist countries in the history curriculum. Um, and I mean, it wouldn't help if there were, it would, it would also help if there were a few more movies like The Lives of Others and Mr. Jones. You know, Hollywood is, has notoriously had hundreds and hundreds of movies about evil under the Nazis, but very few about the evils of communism. Um, and we could use more like that. Yeah, in that vein, I, we're kind of out of time, but I just want to make a, a recommendation. This is not why Ayn Rand wrote the books she wrote, but one of the one of the things you can get from reading her novels, particularly We the Living, which looks at life in the early years of the Soviet regime, is the ways in which the sort of the insidious impact 
of collectivism under the Soviet regime has on, on people who want to live, on the, the best people, the people who are active and ambitious and forward thinking. Uh, and then two other things, I mean, her novelette Anthem is a brilliant sort of conceptualization of what does a society that takes collectivism fully, what does it really look like? What, what is your life going to be and what, what happens to the best among people? The, and by the best, I just mean the most thoughtful, the rational, sort of the industrious, creative types of people, the people who, who want to direct their own lives according to their best judgment. And of course, we can't really talk about this without talking about um, Atlas Shrugged. And again, the, the, she did not write these novels because she wanted to go after socialism. She wrote them because she, she was concerned about the ideal man and what society should look like for the, the ideal individual. But one of the most haunting stories that comes in Atlas Shrug, and I won't, uh, if you haven't read it, I won't spoil it, but what, there's a haunting story that I will refer you to about a factory that takes seriously the ideals of socialism and they implement it within the factory as a community and within the sort of the people working there. And I think having sort of studied a bit of history of socialism and having thought about and, and witnessed manifestations, I think it is on the money. It is just so insightful about what kind of, what it does to the psychology of people living under it, how it steers them towards sort of destroying human relationships as a result of sort of taking these ideas seriously and, and destroying lives in the end as well. Um, I, I think there's a lot that you can learn from those books. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this is the solution to everything, but the more people would read Ayn Rand, I think the more they would learn about sort of the philosophic side of, of the issue in terms of her fiction. And then there's so much that she's written in her nonfiction that people would benefit enormously as a sort of framework for thinking about the history, which I agree with Ben, I agree with you, Ben. There's a lot that people need to know, just the, the basic facts of what happened under the Soviet regime, what happened in Cuba, what happened What's happening now in Venezuela? What's the truth? Uh, and and to, to think about those facts, one needs sort of a philosophic framework. And I think Ayn Rand has a lot to offer in that respect. And since I was mentioning the dearth of good movies about life under communism, I'll also mention that there was an excellent movie made of Ayn Rand's novel, We the Living. Mm -hmm. It's a little hard to find, but it was uh, done in Italian. And it's, it's quite excellent. Let's, um, let's start to wrap up, Elon, and I'm just going to uh, share a list of resources uh, that people can look at, apart from some of the things that you just mentioned, if they're interested in learning more about some of the ideas we discussed today. So a good place to start is to go to the Ayn Rand lexicon. That's on ARI's website uh, at courses.aynrand.org. I've got the longer URL there. Uh, and there's an entry on socialism where there are a number of different passages from a number of Ayn Rand's nonfiction works collected together all in one place, including the one that I shared earlier from Faith and Force. There's also a number from her essay, The Monument Builders, which uh, has a lot on socialism. So that's a good place to start to learn more about her views on socialism. I'll mention a few articles also that Elon and I have both written on the subject. Uh, today, I've drawn some ideas from an older article of mine called Meet the New Socialism, Same as the Old. That's specifically addressing the idea of so-called democratic socialism. You can get that at bit.ly slash new hyphen socialists. Elon has an article referencing some of the concepts he mentioned earlier 
the Berlin Wall and the evil of socialism, I think this originally appeared in The Hill, but it's also on New Ideal if you go to bit.ly slash Berlin hyphen walls hyphen socialist. And then a more recent article of mine on this claim that the Soviet Union and China and Cuba aren't really socialist because the state didn't wither away. I cover that argument in my essay, The Dishonesty of Real Socialism Has Never Been Tried at bit.ly slash socialism hyphen never hyphen tried. So check those out if you're interested in learning more. And otherwise, uh, if, you, if you liked today's episode of New Ideal Live, if you want to be able to follow this podcast, one way to do it, one of the best ways to do it is on YouTube. Subscribe to it by hitting that red subscribe button. If you want to get notifications, hit the little bell button. You can also follow us, of course, on iTunes and other major podcasting audio channels. And if you have questions about us, about things we talked about today or want to suggest new topics, you can always send us an email to newideal at einrand.org. And Elon, maybe we're going to have to do another podcast talking about some of the other questions that we got today about socialism. We'll have to talk about that for the future. Absolutely. And just thanks to all of you for, with your questions and to all of our listeners and viewers who were uh, listening in Spanish. Thanks to our translator. And uh, if you, as, as Ben said, I highly encourage you subscribe and press the like button. We'd really appreciate it. And if you're listening on our podcast, leave us a review. We welcome your feedback. Thanks everyone so much. And thank you, Elon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.